A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. It's been 15 months since this podcast first aired on the Ephesus School Network. When I started, I wasn't following any particular schedule for material to discuss on the show. I dealt with any text as long as it was scripture. Moving forward, that will continue to be the case at least half the time. Listeners can expect that every other episode of this bi-weekly podcast, that is, once a month, we will base the discussion on something from the lectionary of the Orthodox Church. Depending on the season, that could be Old Testament or New Testament, epistles or gospels, but it will cover texts from the lectionary concurrent with when the show is recorded and broadcast. In these episodes, like the one today, Noel Neff will be joining me and initiating the discussion. Welcome, Noel, to episode 21. Thank you, Father. For today's episode, we will be exploring Matthew 21, verses 33 through 44. Before I share some of my observations, I'm going to get us started by hearing the text. Here's our scripture reading for today. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's the end of our passage. The first thing I would like to say about this passage is that this parable appears in all three synoptic gospels, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There is a great deal of similarity between how the parable is presented in each gospel, with some differences. I point this out because when we are looking at the text functionally, each gospel has its own audience and agenda that is connected to the whole of scripture, but is also unique to itself. For our purposes today, we need to hear what Matthew is saying specifically in regards to its own text. 
But the fact that this parable appears three times across these Gospels is cause for us to pay attention. When scripture repeats itself, we should take note. It is worth saying that not all parables are repeated across each of the Gospels, so I think there's something very important for us to hear in this parable. As far as similarities go, I think it's also important to note that in each version of the parable, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. This is Psalm 117, if you are in the Septuagint. In Luke, he only quotes verse 22. Here's the verse. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the Matthew text, we can say that scripture is quoting itself, and it demonstrates Jesus' authority in that he is using scripture to respond to and perhaps rebuke those listening to this teaching. This is a reminder to those hearing this parable that the ultimate teaching authority of this parable comes from scripture. Jesus' response to the chief priests and elders of the people in Matthew, verses 43 and 44, is very condemning. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Wow, I can't help but sense that for those Jesus is giving this warning to in this passage, there's simply no hope for them. There's no third option. You can either be broken on the stone or ground into powder by the stone. I admit that I'm left feeling trapped by scripture again. If I'm honest, I really don't like thinking of the prospect of either of these two choices. It makes me question whether or not there actually is any hope for any of us. What's interesting to me, though, is if you look at Psalm 118, it's an incredibly hopeful text. Here's a couple examples. Verse 1 of the psalm, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I shall not be afraid of what man will do to me. Verse 16 and 17, The right hand of the Lord exalted me. The right hand of the Lord worked its power. I shall not die, but live. I can't help but wonder, was this the stone the builders rejected? Did the builders reject that which was the very foundation of their hope? And this is why Jesus is so condemning in his answer to them? Thank you, Noel for reminding us how this parable appears in the three synoptic gospels. That certainly speaks for its importance. In all three, it is preceded by the questioning of Jesus' authority. Let's go back a few verses in the Matthew text and recall what that exchange sounds like here. The chief priests and elders approach Jesus and ask him about his authority. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? That's verse 23. Instead of answering their question, though, Jesus asks them a question about John and his baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Having rejected John, but unwilling to completely dismiss him for fear of the multitude who regarded John as a prophet, they are unable to answer. And so Jesus tells them he will not answer their question about his authority. 
Notice that Jesus redirects the question of authority to the question of acceptance or rejection of Scripture, according to which John was sent by God. If the chief priests and elders reject what is clearly taught in Scripture, that John was preaching and baptizing under the authority of God, then there's little chance of them accepting Jesus, that he is sent by God and teaching on the authority that comes from the God of Scripture, the same God whose Spirit sent John to preach and baptize. Given their rejection of John, Jesus knows there's no point in reasoning with them. I know you rejected John, and since you did, even if I answered the question you asked, you are not going to be convinced. Still, Jesus continues to teach using parables, one of which we just heard. And the gist of it, the punchline, if you will, is that the kingdom of God, the vineyard, will be taken away from the ones to whom it was originally leased and given to others, to a nation bearing the fruits of it. I'd like to point out a couple of things here. First, the parable is directed to the chief priests and elders. They are the religious leaders, those responsible for teaching, the shepherds entrusted with the care and feeding of the flock. And second, their actions are not motivated by truth, but by fear of upsetting the multitudes, which would put in jeopardy their position of authority. Matthew tells us that's the reason they can't answer Jesus's question. This parable Jesus teaches here, that of the landowner in the vineyard with the tower, is strongly reminiscent of the song of the vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. There it is the Lord's beloved who digs up the ground, clears the stones away, plants the seed, and builds a tower. Everything was done that should have been done, but the result wasn't a useful crop of fruit, but unusable, sour grapes. So what happens next? Let's hear verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah chapter 5. And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Isaiah tells us plainly that the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah is his beloved plant. The Lord had every reason to anticipate a good return. He even put in a wine press, expecting to get a crop of fruit. So the Lord's decision is to remove the protection of the wall, to leave the vineyard to plunderers and forsake it, intentionally not allowing rain to fall on it, so that it might still produce good fruit. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is referencing Isaiah, but here it's a different problem. The end result is the same as in Isaiah, no fruit. But in Jesus' parable, the fault lies not with the vineyard failing to produce, but with the wicked behavior of the vine dressers, the farmers. Remember, this is being directed to the religious leadership. In Matthew, there is no mention whatsoever of what was or wasn't produced, which is odd. We only learn that the ones responsible for tending to the crops beat, killed, and stoned the messengers of the landowner who were sent to collect. And what course of action does the landowner take to get rid of the farmers he hired and put someone else in charge? 
And since this teaching is directed to the religious leadership of the Jews, the parable ends with a question directed to them. What will the landowner do? And they effectively pronounce their own judgment by answering the question. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. That's verse 41. A key to understanding both of these texts is to consider who is doing what. If we look closely at the wording in Isaiah chapter 5, it is the Lord's beloved who is the main agent. He places the wall, he plants the vine, he builds a tower, and he makes the wine press. Of the vineyard, however, Isaiah merely says that it was there for him. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 2, which says that the Lord God placed the man in the garden that was already planted and well watered to tend and keep it. It also recalls chapter 11 of Genesis, in which men planned to build a city and a tower. The vineyard itself merely provides the right environment for good grapes to grow in, for fruit to grow requires that the vine dressers follow the directives of the owner. In the parable in Matthew, it is the landowner, a stand-in for God who does everything. He plants, sets, digs, and builds. Then he leases it to farmers and goes away. As I mentioned, in Matthew, we aren't told anything about the production of fruit, but only of the behavior of the ones who were given the responsibility to care for and tend to the vineyard. It is their mistreatment of the messengers sent by the landowner and not a poor crop production that results in no yield of fruit, which is really what the landowner is interested in. And Isaiah says clearly what that fruit is. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. That's Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. So whereas in Isaiah, the outcome of the vineyard producing unusable fruit is that the vineyard is forsaken and no longer allowed to function as a vineyard, in Matthew, the owner of the vineyard is relentless. Citing the farmers as the problem, he pushes through with his plan to have a vineyard and a productive crop. He will punish the wicked farmers and put others in charge of the vineyard who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's verse 43. The scripture Jesus uses from Psalm 118 speaks of the rejection of the stone, which was the chief stone, the cornerstone, and he is using it against the chief priests and scribes. Why would anyone knowingly discard the most important stone if he were building something? The religious leaders forsook the one thing the Lord is interested in, collecting fruit, in favor of protecting and preserving their position of authority. Once again, Isaiah makes it plain that the fruit that the Lord expects is justice, not oppression, righteousness, not a cry. Instead of building upon the foundation of the Lord's word in Scripture, the leaders have forsaken it. When building their project, they cast aside the most critical material they needed, the word of Scripture, and rejected it as useless. Like the men in Genesis chapter 11, they opt to build with stones that they themselves make by baking bricks. In other words, they are condemned because they are interested in following their own agenda 
and not in the teaching of Scripture. Interestingly, after Jesus speaks the parable, Matthew tells us the reaction of the chief priests and Pharisees. They perceive he is speaking of them and would have seized him immediately, but were afraid of the multitudes who took Jesus for a prophet. Their response to Jesus is the same as it was to John and for the exact same reason, which is fitting since both John and Jesus were acting in obedience to Scripture, in other words, not on their own accord, but according to the will of God. The way Jesus depicts the stone, there is really no good option, as you said. A few episodes back, we had said that when we hear scripture, we find ourselves stuck in a position between a rock and a very difficult teaching. And here it is again. You will either be broken by this stone or grinded to powder by it. Some English translations render that expression grinded to powder as scattered like dust. Again, that expression takes us back to Genesis. In chapter 11, the men devise to build a city and tower whose top will reach to heaven and to make a name for themselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But when the Lord saw their project, he confused their speech and scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth, the very thing they wanted to build the tower to prevent. Dust is specifically mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 as the earth from which Adam was formed, and in Genesis chapter 3, following his act of disobedience to the command of the Lord God, that to which he will return. So, one other important thing to point out, in Isaiah, what the Lord does when the vineyard produces unusable fruit, he tears it down and leaves it desolate and forbids rain to fall on it, corresponds to what he commands the prophet Isaiah to say in chapter 6. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. That's verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6. It's as if, after stubbornly refusing to hear and see for so long, they will be unable to do so even when they try to, and this will happen at the Lord's doing. This is really the epitome of the scriptural teaching as transmitted via the prophets. What is being delivered to you, a scenario of what could happen, is for your instruction. You need to take it seriously and repent while you still can, that is, before it does happen and it is too late. In chapter 21 of Matthew, it may be getting late, but as long as Jesus is still teaching, there is still time to hear. That's why in this parable, the landowner leases his vineyard to others. His interest is still in getting his fruit. To accomplish that, he will lease the vineyard to whoever will provide a return, that is, render the fruits in their season. And, Noel, you mentioned that the strong condemnation by Jesus of the religious leaders make you wonder if there is any hope. Indeed, a sense of hopelessness may be our only hope. In Scripture, whenever human beings begin, set, build, or make, the end result is disastrous. See again the Tower of Babel. 
It is God alone who is the initiator, the builder, the maker, and the owner of everything. It is he who lays a stone of offense in Zion, as we hear in Isaiah chapter 28, in which whoever hopes will not be put to shame. Scripture, which is given to us as instruction from the mouth of God, is either going to break us or scatter us like dust. Unless our hope is in what God offers to us, then we are bound to be hopeless. Thank you, Father, for these wonderful observations of Scripture. I find myself reflecting on one of the last things you said. A sense of hopelessness may be our only hope. I have experienced the truth of this in my own life. One doesn't completely turn to God if one believes in his or her own ability to find a way out of this hopelessness. We think through our resourcefulness as human beings that we can outsmart our problems, dig our way out of our prisons, or build a way forward or backwards depending on your perspective in the world. We want to blame the world and each other for the things that make us feel hopeless, because if we believe in our own powers to change things, others must have the same power for or against us. But if no one is hearing scripture, no one is going to realize that it is God who causes us to feel hopeless. All is the Lord's doing, and if we want the hope of his salvation, this is the essential thing we must accept. Indeed, it is the Lord's doing, and it is often marvelous in our eyes. And marvel as we may, the important thing for us to do is to hear, to trust, and obey. Thank you for joining me today, Noel, and thank you listeners for being with us. This concludes episode 21 of A Light to the Nations. I look forward to meeting with you again soon.